got a brand new set of rugs because I am your brand new fool. I got a brand new set of rugs. I got to learn. Good morning, and welcome to episode 501 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. Presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh of Grantland.com. How are you, Ben? Very well, thank you. We have a guest today. Uh, If you were paying attention uh, this weekend, you noticed that people were talking about the Hall of Fame, uh, both for the inductions of some of our very favorite players of the last two decades, uh, and also for some changes in the rules uh, that will uh, change how people are elected in the future. So we have course, the authority on Hall of Fame voting, uh, Mr. Jay Jaffe of SportsIllustrated.com, and, and um, of course, a, uh, a legend at baseball prospectus as well for many years before that. Jay, how are you? Hey, I'm good. So uh, can you just uh, quickly go over the, the change in the voting rules and uh, how you think that will affect, uh, let's say, how will it affect uh, Barry Bonds? Uh, how will it affect somebody like uh, Pedro Martinez if it does? And how will it affect somebody like, uh, let's say, I don't know, Larry Walker, a kind of a fringe guy who you can make the case for? Okay. Well, what the what the, the Hall of Fame decided to do was to uh, unilaterally reduce uh, the number of years of eligibility that a player could be on the ballot from 15 to 10 Uh it would be one thing if they were to do this to all new candidates, um, but uh, instead they have decided to do this midstream, uh, and they're they're only grandfathering the three the three candidates of the fourteen holdovers who are uh, beyond their tenth year, and that's uh, uh, Don Mattingly, who's headed towards his fifteenth, Alan Trammell, who's headed towards his fourteenth, and Lee Smith, who's headed towards his thir- his thirteenth. None of those three guys are about to get in. Uh, Smith got as high as uh, just a little bit over 50% several years ago, but has since fallen back considerably. Um, Trammell uh, is a guy who my jaw system thinks is an out, you know, is is a would be an outstanding addition to the hall, but he's never even gotten uh, half the support that he needs. Um, you know, this is a this is a surprising change. I mean, it, it would be one thing I think to to tinker with the process. Uh, on, a, on a few different fronts, if you were to reduce the years of eligibility, uh, but to uh, you know allow voters to use uh, more to name more than ten players on their ballots, I think that would that would be one thing. This uh, essentially puts the squeeze on uh, a lot of guys who are who are of the uh, the slow growing support type, um, the type of uh, type of uh, candidates that we've seen several times in recent years with Burt Blylevin getting in on the 14th ballot, uh, Jim Rice on the 15th, and, and uh, Bruce Souter in his 13th year. Uh, that's all uh, in the last uh, uh, decade and and uh, in the time since I've been doing Jaws. Uh, Blylevin was a great choice, and I was uh, definitely involved in supporting him. Uh, I was not as supportive of Souter, and I was definitely not a proponent of, of Jim Rice, but uh, when you look over the number of players who've been elected in their, you know, between their tenth and fifteenth years, there are some good ones. Uh, Ralph Kiner and Lou Boudreau come to mind. Duke Snyder uh, comes to mind as well. Some guys who are above the Jaws line. Um, this is really 
I think of the guys who are hurt the most, the one who's, who this is uh, really kind of devastating to in terms of his chances of getting in via the writer's ballot is, is Tim Raines. Um, he, uh, in his seventh year of eligibility, he, he was at 46% this past year. He was as, as high as 52% the year before. Um, he's now got three turns remaining uh, in a very crowded field instead of having eight turns. And I think, you know, most of us saw him as being on a slow and steady progress towards Cooperstown now. Uh, there's some urgency to it. Um, you know, guys whose careers, I think, are who, who are a little earlier in the process, Larry Walker, uh, you asked me about, he's really screwed. I mean, this is a guy who has peaked at 22.9%, but fell back to 10.2% last year. He's never going to get in on this. I mean, you might as well, I think it would have been more effective to raise the floor uh, for for carrying over on the ballot uh, below t uh, from five percent to ten percent because uh, you'll clear space on the ballot more quickly if you do that. Um, I think he's uh, you know there's going to be uh, a lot of guys in there who just don't build up the support and are quickly cast aside. Uh, but I think the real the the real aim of this is to get the PED guys off the ballot really quickly and and. Um, or more quickly, so that we don't have these long, lingering discussions of dragging uh, the Barry Vaughn steroid saga, the Roger Clemens steroid saga, the Mark McGuire steroid saga uh, into the spotlight again. Uh, McGuire is the most senior of the, of the non-grandfathered guys. He's headed into, I believe, his uh, uh, ninth year of eligibility. Uh, this pretty much ends any hope that he's going to have to have a chance to build his support. Um, who else was there that you asked me about there? I'm, I've already lost track. Uh, Pedro or, you know, guys who... Oh, Pedro. And, okay, so yeah, for, for a first ballot guy like Pedro, I mean, this has a potential to suppress his percentage a little bit to the point where it's not really, you know, it, it'll be tough to compare it to the Maddoxes and the, and the Tom Sievers for the, you know, the high 90s stuff, which it really isn't a big deal. If you're over 75%, you're in. You don't get a special brownie button for, you know, for, for topping 95%. Um... You know, there's quite reasonably there might be some people who who see Pedro is likely to get in anyway, and you know feel like I don't necessarily need to vote for him, but I do need to vote for Tim Raines uh, or Jeff Bagwell or you know somebody or Edgar Martinez, another person who I think is 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 hurt very greatly by this thing, and because he was on the kind of the slow and steady progress uh, uh, train. Um, you know, I think it lessens the likelihood that, say, John Smoltz is going to go in on the first ballot because I see him as a as a you know a bit more of a borderline guy than than uh, Greg Maddox and, and and Tom Glavin who were inducted today. Um, but mostly, I, what I think this is about is the Hall kind of trying to put its own stamp on this because if you get guys uh, and to take it away from the writers because if you get guys off the writers ballot in ten years instead of fifteen, you make them eligible for the Veterans Committee ballot, uh, which is now the Expansion Era Committee ballot, more quickly. Um, and that they can stack the deck any way they want with that. They choose who's on that committee. Uh, they've, you know, they've lauded it with Hall of Famers and old executives and, and uh, old managers and crotchety old mofos who, you know, really, when, they, when, when the players, when the, when the Veterans Committee expanded to include just the old Hall of Famers, uh, the Living Hall of Famers and Spink and Frick Award recipients, they had a kind of a country club mentality where nobody was good enough for them. Literally, nobody got in in the years that they had the vote. Um, and that's the danger with these with these smaller committees is that uh, nobody's ever good enough for them. So um, 
I worry this is a backdoor play to keep guys like Bonds and Clemens out of the Hall of Fame, uh, even though I do think that that is their due. So do you think that the writer's ballot was the best chance for induction for, for those guys that we're talking about? Or is or is it positive? Yeah. Is it possible that you know getting them off this system, that, which has not worked a, for them so far, might actually be their best shot? That's a good question. I mean, I think the thing you have to remember with the writer's ballot is that there is there is within the BBWAA an effort to to clean up the voting rules, um, you know, to kind of nudge the guys who are now editing golf magazines or whatever uh, who are not covering baseball um, anymore to to give up their votes. And and I think that uh, while it's not a, a full court press. Uh, there has been talk about it getting uh, that that kind of thing in, intensifying, and there's a lot of turnover with the BBWA. I'm still six and a half years away from the vote myself, but you know, there's a whole generation of people like me who are waiting their turns. Christina Carl, another BP alum, who's uh, ahead of me in line. Uh, uh, Keith Law, uh, another BP alum, who's ahead of me in line. I think there, there are a lot of us who are more sabermetrically minded than the. Uh, people we would be effectively replacing within the right within the BBWA who would be more receptive to <clears throat> you know to the to the let's just say the saber the the, the sabermetrically approved candidates and probably have a bit more perspective on uh, the uh, the PED related guys because we weren't the ones who covered them directly we weren't the ones who who feel like we got burned because they were lying to us uh, about what they were doing. Uh, we weren't the ones who had the wool pulled over our eyes, so to speak. Um, so there's, you know, so, so there may be, there may be, a, there may have been a way uh, that, given enough time, uh, the Bonds and Clemenses and whoever else, uh, you know, built up enough support within the within the writers uh, if they just if the hall had just left well enough, well enough alone. Um, that said, it, it may be uh, such that. Um, given enough time because there's no limit to how many times you can be reviewed by the expansion era committee um, that, uh, you know, 30 years from now, there will be the right committee, the right mix of personalities involved that will, you know, give bonds and Clemens and whoever else their due. Um, I strongly suspect that's not the case because the hall will always be able to stack the deck uh, against those, against those it doesn't want in. I mean, look, you know, look at the, uh, uh, the Marvin Miller stuff. I mean, the way they keep putting all you know the the second and uh, second generation uh, opponents of of, of Miller, uh, guys whose whose fathers were 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 reserve clause era executives and things like that. Um, you know, the Hall they they can you know, they can't guarantee an outcome, but they can certainly uh, uh, go a long way towards predetermining it. I've seen the idea circulated in, in many places that eventually the hall will have to do something or would be best served by doing something to get those guys in because they are, for better or worse, the, the face of their era. They are some of the best players, certainly statistically, in baseball history. And and there's this sense that maybe the museum about baseball history loses some legitimacy, loses some appeal if those guys are not in it, and that without them, people might stop showing up at some point. Is that true? Uh, I mean, I think the absolutely. first part, the first yeah, part I, is I, true, but are, are people actually going to cancel their vacation to Cooperstown because a, they can't well, see Bonds or Clemens? I don't, I can't, you know, I can't tell whether that would actually dissuade someone from going or whether it might be an incentive to go if they are there. 
There was a very legitimate fear that the Hall of Fame has. Uh, there was a New York Times story this weekend that said that uh, reported that they had experienced declining attendance in every year since 2005. Um, you know, obviously the, the you know the economic situation of this country had something to do with that. Uh, maybe the steroid era had something to do with that. Uh, but the reality is, is, is that the, you know the Hall of Fame. I think is a lot of it is about you know one generation passing on the game's history to the next. Uh, you know the idea that you take your kids there, you show them the heroes of your youth, uh, the guys you grew up watching. Um, you know, and impart your own memories uh, as you see them, and get, you know, while giving the kids a, a chance to see the, you know, the learn about Willie Mays and Joe DiMaggio and and, and whoever else. And the theory goes that, you know, if if uh, if Barry, if the Bonds and Clemenses and the guys we watched, our generation watched, um, you know, don't get in sooner or later, the impetus there will be less impetus for us to go because we're not the ones who have firsthand memories of Willie Mays and and Joe DiMaggio and whoever to impart. To that next generation, so I think I think there is that fear. Um, I don't think the hall really knows what to do, um, and I don't think they fully thought this through. I don't think the uh, um, the let's face it, the law of intent, unintended consequences uh, has has bitten them on the ass several times before, um, with the veterans the the expanded veterans committee being uh, uh, one of the most obvious examples, but hardly the only one. So I don't know. I think it's a it's a it's a very mixed bag, uh, and I I don't know if anybody really truly knows how it's going to play out. But I suspect that uh, um, this is going to make it harder for those guys uh, just by creating a an artificial scarcity of votes on the ballot, making it harder for the mid ballot guys, the guys who would not be automatic first ballot guys like Mike Messina and Kurt Schilling. Uh, but who aren't connected to PEDs, making it tougher for them to get into the game, to get into the Hall of Fame. So um, how how many times has the Hall of Fame changed the voting rules in its history? Is this something that every decade or so they try to engineer something to make no, it perfect? No, it's, it's, it's been fairly scarce, actually. I mean, the, the 75% rule uh, has been in place since the first class in 1936. Um, the... Uh, the ten men on a ballot has been in place since since the 1936 inception. Uh, the five percent rule uh, did not uh, did not develop until the late 70s and was revised a couple of times. Uh, the five year waiting rule was not even put into place in until the 50s, I believe. Um, for a while, there was there was annual voting, then there was biennial voting and triennial voting, and back to annual voting. Uh, it's gone through a few different permutations there. Um, in 1985, the modern five percent rule was put in place. Uh, in 1966, uh, the the writers returned to voting every year. Uh, in 1991, uh, the Pete Rose ruling that uh, only those in good standing uh, in terms of uh, not being suspended for life by baseball, uh, were eligible for the Hall of Fame. The Pete Rose rule was put in place. That was the last change uh, to the voting rules. Um, now, since then, they've rejiggered the Veterans Committee 74 times, um, but that's sort of separate. Uh, with regards to the writers and the, and the recently retired candidates, as they call them, uh, those rules have been pretty solid for the last 20 years. Is it, at least in the abstract, I guess, the, the reduction from 15 to 10 is is not a bad thing, right? I mean, right now it might be because of the crunch of candidates and because of the 
the guys who have not been allowed in for one reason or another that probably should have been and maybe won't won't be now. But in the future, whenever that backlog clears, maybe it's not a bad thing that we don't have to rehash the same guys 15 yeah, times. I, maybe people will reevaluate more quickly when they know that they don't have as many years to do that. I think that, the, yes, I think in the abstract reducing the, the waiting period from 15 or reducing the eligibility period from 15 years to 10 years is not a bad thing. Uh, but they just couldn't do it. Uh, you can't just do it without making other changes to, to, uh, uh, to accompany that, uh, and still have it be an equitable process. I mean, you, and you can't change it mid midstream for, uh, you know, for, for so many guys. I mean, if, if I, if you're going to grandfather, I think you've got to grandfather everybody who's, who's got, uh, uh, more than five years on the ballot. Maybe it's a sliding scale. Maybe you have to achieve X, X percent, you know, 25% by your fifth year and 50% by your 10th year. But I don't think you should be shut out, um, of, you know, of it, uh, if you achieve certain, uh, levels of support, uh, at certain points in the process. Uh, if, if we're not going to do a full grandfathering of everybody who's on the ballot. Um, but yeah, in the future, I would, you know, I don't, I don't think 10 years is a bad, is a bad time. Uh, the problem is we've got such a backlog uh, of qualified candidates. I had over four. I had 14 guys that I would have voted for if I had a real ballot uh, on the, on this last round. Guys who were who were fully qualified via Jaws, um, and that didn't even include Craig Biggio, uh, who's got 3,000 hits and and who has a, a a very good case. But you have to sort of consider the time that he played at catcher uh, as well to really get him uh, above the Jaws line. Um, and uh, when you look when you look back over uh, the last several decades, uh, the writers have not been keeping up with levels of representation that were that that uh, previous uh, generations of writers were. We've gotten very stingy uh, with who gets into the Hall of Fame, and part of that is the absence of the steroid guys, but part of that is just the glacial process um, and uh, this tendency to just defer, 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 keep kicking the can down the road on on some of these guys. Mm -hmm. And the other change to the process was that Hall of Fame voters will now be required to complete a registration form and sign a code of conduct that will say that they shouldn't sell their vote to Deadspin, I assume. Uh, yeah, that's I mean, this is pretty small stuff. I mean, you know, uh, Dan Levitard was was uh, stripped of his vote uh, by the BBWAA and suspended uh, for a year, um, stripped, stripped of his vote lifetime and suspended uh, from other BBWA privileges for a year uh, for his actions. Um, I think what the hall wanted to do, though, was to uh, create a mechanism where it could uh, punish a a voter who for for an infraction, uh, whether or not the BBWA sanctioned him or her, um, and that's what they've done. I don't see that as being a particularly uh, drastic move. Um, you know, it just says it just puts it just codifies. Uh, I think a process of, of uh, uh, consequ you know consequences for um, you know for abusing the privilege of voting. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think you know the registration thing. I don't think that has much effect. I mean, I, I don't I don't have a problem. I certainly don't have a problem with the publication of every name of, of the of a voter uh, who who cast a ballot. I would I, you know I'm in favor of more transparency. I think their entire ballots should be public. Um, but uh, and there are a lot of people within the BBWA who, who are with me on that, and most of them aren't the retired ones. Um, it, you know, the, it's the, it's the retired guys who are voting for only two or three candidates, um, and and you know have a get off my lawn attitude towards 
the more recent players, particularly the players from the from the so-called steroid era, uh, that are, um, you know, I think the, some of the problem voters, the guys who were sending back by blank ballots and such. Uh, at the at the very beginning, um, when you were answering the first question, you sort of tucked into your answer the word unilaterally. The Hall of Fame unilaterally made this this move. Do you have a uh, is that part of the problem that that the, the Hall of Fame has um, as much power as they do? Do you think, or is there anybody that you'd rather have the power? Well, it, it's interesting. You, it's interesting you bring that up. I am part of a BBWA committee that that. Uh, has been in the process of uh, recommending some changes. We've been debating, we spent a lot of time in the spring debating uh, exactly what those recommendations would be. Uh, and I think that they, those are going to go eventually make their way to uh, uh, the rank and file membership. I think probably just first via a survey uh, to take the full temperature because uh, our committee was designed to not reach a quick consensus, um, but to instead uh, debate the issues uh, including the ten man, the you know the ten the ten man rule, the seventy five percent rule, uh, a few other things. Uh, anything that we anything that that committee comes out with, uh, all we can do is recommend it to the hall. We can't make the change unilaterally ourselves, but we could recommend it to the hall, which would then uh, consider it and and uh, act accordingly. Uh, I think you know I would like to have seen uh, the writers consulted on this one. I would like to have you know to have uh, been able to. Uh, give my input on this before it happened, but uh, um, you know, and our efforts do not uh, have not ended with with this change. I think there this probably actually uh, could strengthen the movement to increase the ballot size. Um, you know, as a counter to what the hall has done. Um, you know, I can't do uh, I, I, I can't go into too much more detail there, but but I think that that is probably the you know one of the more likely things, and I think. Um, it would, it would not have happened in time for this year's vote anyway, but um, down the road certainly is, is a possibility. So this was the this was induction weekend. This was the the feel good weekend of the year, the year when everyone's in Cooperstown, everyone's watching Cooperstown, and yet we we've been talking about these rule changes for the first twenty minutes or so of this interview, which maybe is our bad interview skills. I don't know, but no, but I think I think it was to, to interject here. I think this yeah. was this was a, a PR mistake by the right. hall uh -huh. to put this out front of the ceremonies instead of do it when everybody's leaving town. Um, you know, because this really over—I mean, you know—it overshadowed this. This this announcement came on Saturday morning, and I think it overshadowed uh, the Spink and Frick uh, and uh, O'Neill Award stuff. Um, and I think is has has spilled into uh, you know the uh, the coverage of uh, uh, the six Hall of Famers. So um, that's not that's not your fault. That's not my fault. That's the Hall's fault. It's our job to I mean, you know I consider my job to be to be reporting on what the Hall's Hall's doing this weekend. Uh, not simply to blow smoke up the butts of uh, uh, the six inductees. Mm -hmm. And was there anything notable from the ceremony itself? I mean, I watched Roger Angel's induction speech, which was great, of course. And uh, it, it it seems like almost an afterthought. I mean, we we spend months arguing about who's going to get in, and then and then the guys get in and they give their speech, and and people people care more, it seems, about who's who's going to get in than when they actually do get in. But was there was there anything that, that you saw from this weekend uh, that was worth sharing? 
Well, you know, I've as 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 we speak, <coughs> sorry, as we speak, I'm actually in the process of of, of watching today's uh, induction ceremonies. Uh-huh. I had uh, a few other things going on, and and mm-hmm. so got to it late. And uh, part of that was strat- strategically because I could fast forward through the 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 ones I wanted to didn't didn't want to listen to, and uh, uh, fast forward through the commercials. Um, I thought uh, Angel's speech was good, uh, which that uh, they they aired that uh, they chopped it up into three separate blocks, which it wasn't that long a speech. Um, but uh, they mutilated it for TV. But uh, I thought it was a very poignant speech. Um, uh, I, I thought Greg Maddox's speech was pretty funny. Uh, I thought Tom Glavin's speech was dry as a bone. Uh, I skipped Bobby Cox's speech. That's where I am in the broadcast right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, still haven't heard Frank Thomas or Joe Torrey yet. Uh, uh, I think I'm probably most looking forward to Torrey's because uh, uh, I watched so much of his managerial career with the Yankees and the Dodgers and uh uh, you know, he's somebody who means a lot to me, even though uh, I certainly have my differences with uh, uh, how he handled certain issues. You did an exercise on the, the 75th anniversary of the first induction. You you ranked the, the top 75 players in the Hall of Fame. Was there uh, was there anything enlightening that came out of that? Anything surprising? It was, any controversy? Well, it, it was interesting. I mean, the, the, the editors, uh, my editor asked me to do a, a, a top 75 list. But he wanted it to be, you know, the, something something Jaws related because you know Jaws has become uh, obviously very popular when it comes to the Hall of Fame, and uh, uh, anybody can do a top seventy-five list, but nobody could do the Jaws seventy-five. Um, so he wanted me to stick with an objective methodology, and, and the one I came up with was one where, uh, as it turns out, there are exactly seventy-five players in the Hall, including uh, uh, two of the three inducted today. Um, who have uh, above-average career peak and jaw scores relative to their positions across the board, clean sweep. Um, and if you build that list and you rank them accordingly, uh, you still wind up you wind up leaving off a number of players who, for you know, for most of us, I think the Hall of Fame is not truly the Hall of Fame. Uh, Jackie Robinson, for example, had a uh, you know, an above-average peak according to Jaws, but a short career because his, he uh, didn't make uh, the majors until he was 28 years old due to the color line. So he's not on the list. Uh, Sandy Koufax, because of his short career, isn't on the list. Um, Ralph Kiner isn't on the list. There's a there's a whole bunch of guys who don't make that list because they may be a little bit below average on career, a little bit below average on peak. Tony Gwynn, uh, below average on peak, for example. Um, so I actually preceded the, the Jaws 75 list uh, with uh, a baker's dozen uh, omissions, uh, guys who it chafed, literally chafed me not to be able to – maybe not literally. Okay. Uh, it, it chafed me not to be able to include them because I could you know, hear the objections to that, li- to that in my mind. Um, once I did the 75, I think I was a little – uh, surprised and maybe maybe frustrated at how high the um, the 19th century pitchers uh, from the pre 60 foot six day, uh, era, uh, which is say pre 1893, how just how how many of them there are that are that are just kind of uh, uh, wind up climbing the ranks. John Clarkson, Tim Keefe, Pud Galvin, um, uh, you know everybody loves Old Hoss Radborn, so I'm not going to say a bad thing about him. Uh, but there's a lot of those guys, and they all you know. They, they look kind of alike uh, from this vantage uh, 125 years later, and uh, there's certainly a lot more modern guys that would, that I would like to have included uh, on that list. Uh, maybe if I was going to just draw up my top 75, I think I would have, uh, uh, you know, I would have gone about it slightly differently. Um, 
So that was, I don't know if, I don't know if I was surprised. I've been looking at these numbers for so long, um, that, uh, not a whole lot really surprises me that much about it. So this is slightly off topic. I think this is the last question. Uh, it's hall of fame related, but just barely, uh, we get a version of this question every few months. Um, so if you imagine that Mike Trout at some point in his career just suddenly became basically a league average outfielder, like, uh, somewhere between maybe Bernard Gilkey and, and Brian Jordan, you know, until the end of his career. How many more years of this Mike Trout do we need to get to uh, before that happens for him to be a Hall of Famer? You know, that's a good question here. Let me, uh, I, could, I could probably answer this more easily if I have his uh, baseball reference page in front of me, so give me a second here. You mean you okay. don't just all the time like we all do? Well, you know, I have it tattooed on my arm, but uh, I'm wearing, <laughs> wearing sleeves right now. Um, Trout would need about... Oh, let's see here. Trout already ranks 95th among center fielders for three three years and change in his career. <laughs> for less than less than three full major league seasons, actually. Um, he is uh, he is uh, he's got a, a peak score of uh, round rounding up where he's got a peak score of 26. The average Hall of Fame center fielder peak score is 44. Um, He's got four more years, a minimum of four more years to get to, to that peak score because the peak is the player's best seven years. So um, four or five win seasons uh, would get him to the average peak score. Um, that doesn't sound right, does it? Yeah, that's about, I guess that's about right. Uh, the, the bar for center field is kind of is, is, is kind of high, uh, skewed by the Mays, Cobb, Speaker, well, and group. And one of, one of Trout's... One of the three you're counting for Trout is is only in July. Is only in July, yes. That, and the other that, one missed April. That is that is that that is correct. So we're yeah. So literally, we've probably got three and a half years. So I think um, it's, it's tough to do math in, in the middle of a in the middle of answering a podcast question. Um, but you know, I I do think that Mike Trout could probably be about a three win a year player for the remainder of his career, um, and his Hall of Fame numbers would not look too bad. Uh, let's just say. We had 15 years of the times times three war. Uh, that's 70 war. That's that's the average Hall of Famer at his position. Let's just say, uh, assuming there's no variance there, um, you probably have uh, a slightly below average peak, uh, but career, but solid career, and probably assume he gets to some, you know, some reasonable counting stat numbers for hits and home runs and, and whatever. Um, maybe that's a maybe that's a bit much, but. Uh, um, I think he could probably probably only needs a couple more real all-star caliber years before he he downshifts into a more uh, average uh, type career. That said, um, you look at say uh, the career trajectories of guys like Cesar Cedeno uh, and Andrew Jones, who certainly looked like they were on Hall of Fame paths uh, as center fielders early in their career, and then flamed out pretty quickly once they hit thirty or so. Um, there are no guarantees. Cedeno didn't make it. Uh, I still think Andrew Jones might have a better shot just because he was part of a winning Braves team for so long. Um, but uh, his career certainly fell off the table there. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks, Jay, for the, the mid-year Hall of Fame update. Sure. My, pl- my <laughs> before pleasure. You, before you take a few months off and then dive right back in. Yeah, I actually, I, there's, uh, I got a little project uh, going that uh, means that I won't actually take that off, uh, <laughs> front burner, but I will, uh, uh, I, I will, t- I will speak more of that uh, uh, soon. 
Okay. And how can people find your stuff at the, the redesigned SI site? Good luck. Um, <laughs> the best way to do that uh, is to go to si.com slash MLB. Uh, that's where my stuff is. And uh, look for me on Twitter at J-A-Y underscore J-A-F-F-E because I am uh, prolific with my tweets promoting my work. <laughs> Yes, that's that's the only reason to be on Twitter, really, at the heart of it. Um, all right, well, thank you, Jay, and uh, that's the end of the show for today. Please support our sponsor, Baseball Reference. Go to BaseballReference.com. Use the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Please send us some emails for later this week at podcast at BaseballProspectus.com, and we'll be back with another show tomorrow.